Gentlemen, if I may, please. T tell me, first of all, is the haircut uh, an act by accident or design? Accident. You didn't have time to get your haircut in the first place. Yeah. No, it just happened, you know. Ringo's was by design because he joined yeah, later. I designed it. <laughs> How often do you get your hair cut, by the way? Uh, well, we don't. We try not to mention that. <laughs> it's a dirty word. Uh, uh, this, this new phrase that's coming up, the Liverpool sound, is a bit of a, a puzzle to some of us older people, especially in Ireland. Could you, could you define it for me? It's could a puzzle to us, too. It's not really a Liverpool sound. It's no it just thing. so happens that the, the new groups who have come out all happen to have come from Liverpool, so people sort of generalise a bit and say... Aha, the Liverpool sound. But really, you know, uh, if you listen to the groups, they're all quite different. Yeah. It's not all one big sound that's coming out. Now, it's no use saying, are you, are, you, are you surprised by your success? Because quite plainly, you're not a bit surprised. But we are, no, we are surprised, but you just sort of, you know, it's so surprised. I mean, it just, it we doesn't look surprised register. every day. <laughs> <laughs> we look off our heads, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> About your, your Irish backgrounds, yeah, I think we've all got a bit. It's a you know, high me on the end. Of it. Still going. Irish backgrounds we're on. I think I saw one, I think I saw you being greeted by uh, by somebody outside. No, no, that, that was, was George. Me, that was me. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, actually, it was um, my mother, <laughs> who was, she came over here, you know, because she's got hundreds of cousins and relatives over here, and then she hasn't seen us for weeks anyway because we've been away. So she's come to see the show and to see her cousins and. One of the cousins was here with her. Your mother has to come to Ireland to see you. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, in a way, typifies the kind of uh, the kind of extraordinary upset that must occur in your in your let us say your private lives. Do you get home at all? Uh, yeah. It, it, sometimes you get home for a whole week, but sometimes you don't get home, you know, for months on end. It's but normally about one day, one day, three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. The new idea, telephones help a bit. You oh, know. oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. God bless Graham Bell. Does the continuous living and working together impose any temperamental stress upon you? No, actually, it's quite, it's quite lucky because we've been, we've been together now for 40 years. And, you know, we've we all been mates for quite a long time, so we, we don't get on each other's nerves as much as we could. <laughs> We're quite friendly. Yeah, I saw. I see. <laughs> so I see. Well, well, now, uh, so far as I can see, the, the greater portion of your public seems to be female. So what do you attribute this extraordinary success? We, a lot of people here, will be very interested to know this. Well, you, you can't make it out, you know. We're just, male, aren't we? You know, it'd be a bit funny if they're all fellas. Don't get away. <laughs> of course, it's very nice. <laughs> you know. 
You can't. We don't know why. I mean, if we knew, we'd, we'd be made, you know, more or less. You just go and get a, a six groups like us who attracted them. And I forgot my Mac. And so I said to John, if you don't fetch yours, it's going to rain, you see. And he's... <laughs> well, uh, we're talking about your appeal to the feminine sex. I come to the conclusion that whatever it is, it's bigger than four of you. Aye. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. And welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of, all the, time. of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is Wild Screen Screen Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Right, everyone, we are here today because the Revolver box set episode is taking far too long for my liking, and because I've started writing like three or four more episodes that are nowhere near completion. And so we're going to be forwarding ahead with this cracking little interview that I did about two weeks ago. To be fair, at the rate I'm going, I'll be doing a Listen with Sam, Pipes of Peace episode, as the McCartney Singles box set has just come out. I'm going to have to talk about that as well. But anyhow, as you know, I am incredibly partial to interviews with authors and even more partial to free press copies of any book. So I would never turn down the opportunity to indulge in both. Fortunately for me, both the author and the text itself were more than charming. And I know you will enjoy this upcoming conversation. Today, I'll be speaking with the author of The Beatles in 63, and his name is David Reese. He has been writing books on rock and roll for decades now, and his expertise in the field is clear as day when you start reading his latest work. Now, we all love a Beatle fan and a Beatle expert, but David is more than that. He lives and breathes rock journalism, and that Granite Strong Foundation has meant that whilst the book is perfect for Beatles fan new and old, the thing that really makes it stand out is... It's journalistic and investigative accomplishments, of which there are many. Of course, we'll be going into the book in much more detail as we go on, so at this early point, all I'll say is go out and buy it now. It is one of the best works on a specific Beatle topic there is out there. You know, it's just looking at the Beatles in 1963, nothing from 62, nothing from 64. It is just a very specific story about the band at a particular time, a very pivotal time, a time of great change and contrast. And I can't imagine any of you would feel anything less than love towards it. So again, please find the Beatles in, in 63, uh, either online or at any good book shop slash store. Of course, it was a great pleasure speaking with Daffith. And, you know, I'm always a bit nervous speaking with authors, you know, because they're not broadcasters. They're not podcasters. They're not personalities in that way. Their job is to write interesting fiction. And so there's always a bit of a tre- like trepidation about whether we're going to get along or if you'll get the vibe that we're going for here at Paul or Nothing. And fortunately, he did. And without even me having to prompt him, he did my favourite thing, which is just to go off on wild tangents and digressions. So yeah, it's a very Paul or Nothing episode for better or worse. Uh, In this conversation, you are going to hear me talk about a couple of things before we do start, though. In this conversation, you will hear me ask, uh, you know, when the book comes out. 
egg on my face, bit embarrassing, a bit cringeworthy there. The book had already come out at that point. But yeah, it means you can, you can go out and buy it now. Also, uh, Daffith's internet connection wasn't exactly the best, so there are a few points where it cuts out. But from what I remember, they aren't that derailing. Uh, you'll just have to maybe fill in the odd word here or there. And you'll also hear me in this episode talk about how I intended to continue reading the book. And you know me, folks, I'm a terrible reader. I've got the attention span of a kindergartner. But you know what? I actually bloody well have gone and continued reading that book. Have I finished it? No, come on, let's not be ridiculous here. But, you know, every couple of days I've read a few more pages here and there. It keeps drawing me back again and again and again. It calls me back again you might say. Yeah, folks, I really did enjoy this book, and I really enjoyed talking with Daffith, so I think I really enjoyed this episode, and I hope you will too. But first, before we do any of that, we do have the matter of the housekeeping. Starting off, what do we have in terms of news for today? Well, the big one, folks, the elephant in the room, Paul McCartney, the seven-inch singles box set has indeed come out. Uh, I would love to hear if any of you out there were fortunate enough to purchase this box. Not if you're Tom Hanyardi, obviously I'll be dealing with him in my own time. But yeah, this has been a big one, folks. This is, uh, you know, this is Paul's own version of that very garish $1,000 George Harrison uh, All Things Must Pass box set that came out quite recently as well. Though, you know, it's only around 60% of the price of that one. I myself did try to purchase it. I was going to go through the payment plan where you could pay like $170 for four months or something like that. And by the time I even logged on to Paul McCartney's website, it was gone. Yes, there is a bit of a spate of uh, FOMO on the Paul McCartney website right now. Do, do, do you remember that Wings desk ornament? That sold out instantly as well. This is no different, albeit a, you know, a much grander product to sell. If, folks, if you don't know what it is, it is just a box set with all of Paul McCartney's singles in it. There are omissions, yes, like there aren't that many jukebox singles or anything like that. It's mostly the official actual product singles that you could buy in shops. I know that there are quite a few American releases that aren't in it. It does seem to be more Eurocentric, but hey, I'm European myself, so sod it. It is gargantuan. It is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it, it's got unique artwork for all of the discs from like all around the world. You know, they, they, they really have seemingly gone the extra mile to make sure that this is worth the 600 or so dollars that it was. I mean, I've even heard that McCartney's going to be making a loss off something like this. So it could be more of a gift, quote unquote, to the fans than we may realise. I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing with this one. I've been, I was planning on just doing a bonus episode or maybe just a quick summary episode where I go through it. But sitting here now, I'm thinking maybe rather than Pipes of Peace, I could do Listen With Sam, The Seven Inch Singles, where I go through the lot. Maybe it might take three or four episodes, but hey, I, I think that could be fun. I think that could be fun because, of course, it is all available on streaming services, and there are quite a few songs that are now available on streaming that previously weren't. Songs like Back On My Feet, the seven-inch version of Secret Friend, It's Not True, Right Away, the single version of uh, Figure of Eight, I know that's on there, The First Stone, All My Trials, Long Leather Coat, 
and even Tropic Island Hum. Yes, glad to see that one finally on streaming. Yeah, folks, I'm definitely going to be doing something big to match the scale of this, and I'm sure I will have it out as on time as the Revolver box set episode as well. Moving on, we've also had the re-release of The Concert for George. Of course, for anyone who is a modicum of a Beatles fan, you'll know what this film is. It's the 2003 concert film of the 2002 concert that was filmed after George's death in 2001. It is a smorgasbord of who's who in terms of the great rock intelligentsia, particularly those associated with George directly, whether in his Beatle or solo career. It is two and a half hours long. It begins with a 30-minute uh, raga written by Ravi Shankar, uh, performed by his and conducted by his daughter, which is really cool. Jefflyn uh, also does the inner light halfway through it which is another highlight and then he goes into about two hours of Eric Clapton, Jeff Lynne, Tom Petty, Gary Brooker, Billy Preston, Ringo Starr, Joe Brown who does the, the highlight of the show um, I'll See You In My Dreams, one that makes me cry every time as well as a certain appearance from one Paul McCartney who does For You Blue something with Eric Clapton and all things must pass. And it has finally, well, it made its way back to our cinema screens in celebration of its 20th anniversary. So yeah, it's been 22 years now since the death of George, if the math checks out there. Folks, I actually didn't manage to go see this. I was going to go see it with a friend, but unfortunately... I had to go cover a shift at work. Surprise, surprise. Uh, saying that you want to go see a 20-year-old concert film about a man who, in the general public's eye, whose music has been relevant for like 60 years, is not an excuse to not do a closing shift at a pub that is understaffed. Wah, wah, wah. Oh, well, woe is me. But, you know... There are copies available online. You can go stream it. You can go buy the DVD secondhand on Amazon for like £70 if you want to. Uh, thankfully, you can stream it, uh, though it's quite restricted where you can stream it. I believe it's only available on Apple TV at the moment, but there is a new Attenborough Dinosaur docuseries that I want to watch. So I think in preparation for my episode that I'm going to be doing with Dylan Seavey quite soon on the concert for George, I'll be streaming it there. But yeah, hopefully some of you out there got to go see it. I hope some of you did. Uh, if you saw the concert for George on its 20th anniversary, please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts. And finally, in some rather sad news, we've also witnessed in recent days the passing of Christine McVie, who I've always called Christine McVie for some reason. Of course, she was one of the main songwriters, vocalists and keyboardists with the band Fleetwood Mac. Yes, very sad to see another uh, one of rock's great icons slip into the great void to sh you know, shuffle off this mortal coil. Her imprint on the world of rock and roll is truly undeniable. You know, she was there when Fleetwood Mac really took off and became the modern super band that we all know. You know, of course, Fleetwood Mac had hits before, but she really was there to help transition them to be the sensation that we know today. I mean, eight of the songs written or co-written by her appear on the 1988 Greatest Hits album. That includes Don't Stop, 
Everywhere and Little Lies, a song that always ends up on a playlist whenever I go to one of my friend's parties. Uh, yeah, really sad about this one, folks. Um, I'm not the biggest Fleetwood Mac fan. I don't know their discography probably as well as I should. But, you know, if I'm going to give a shout-out to Jerry Lee Lewis, who, you know, <laughs> had his uh, awful, awful problems of his own, you know, if I'm going to give him a shout-out, I cannot not give Christine McVie a shout-out as well. Rest in peace, Christine. You will be sorely missed by your legions of fans. And now that the news is over, it's time to press on to the emails, to the correspondence, to get in contact with the show, please email us at paulmccartney.gmail.com. Get in contact with whatever topic you want, as long as it's Paul McCartney related, adjacent or tangentially so. Uh, I want to hear your Paul McCartney stories. I want to hear about you seeing the, the concert for George, maybe your thoughts on Christine V, uh, or even your experiences with the Paul McCartney singles box set. But instead... We don't have any of that because that has all just recently happened. <laughs> so our first email today is actually a reply uh, to an email from the last episode. Um, this person emailed in and gave me kind of like tintillating little hint at something that was happening between uh, Jan or Jan Wenner and Paul McCartney. And they recommended me to go read a book that I did not have access to. So I said, look, could you just tell me the story, please, <laughs> for the benefit of the audience as well. For those of you who can't remember, this is from Emma. And she says... Hi Sam, thanks for reading my message on the show. Smiley face. I'm sorry I didn't give you the full Polaroid story. I was worried I wouldn't do it justice, but you asked, so here it goes. First, a bit of context. As you know, Jan Wenner is the co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine and a major player in the Beatles' historiography, Lennon Remembers and all that. It was Wenner who invited Paul to induct John Lennon into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then reneged on his promise that Paul would be inducted the following year. It appears that Wenner had a real problem with McCartney. This is most obvious during the Lennon Remembers interview, when Jan asked John if he believed that Paul had included Baby Mary on the McCartney album cover in order to taunt the Lennons who recently suffered a miscarriage. This was too much even for John Lennon in 1970. I mean, who thinks like that? It's pretty unpleasant. Wenner was a massive Lennon fan, but that didn't stop him from betraying his hero over the publication of Lennon Remembers in 71. For whatever reason, John did not want the interview to appear in book form, perhaps because he regretted burning so many bridges, and was furious when Wenner disregarded his wishes. They never spoke again. When Wenner's biographer, Joe Hagen, met and interviewed Paul McCartney, he was surprised to discover that Paul seemed unaware of this fact. But then, Paul and John never discussed Lennon Remembers at all. Which brings us to the Polaroid. In Wenner's archive, Hagen found a mysterious envelope addressed to one Johann Wiener, and postmarked Los Angeles, California. Inside was a single Polaroid photograph of John Lennon and Paul McCartney hanging out on a garden patio with Linda and May Pang and Keith Moon, dated Palm Sunday 1974. It's one of a series of Polaroids that have become quite famous as the last known photographs of Lennon and McCartney together. On the white strip below, on the image, someone had written, how do you sleep? Question mark, question mark, question mark, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Joe Hagen took a copy of the Palm Sunday Polaroid and showed it to McCartney, who had no knowledge of it being sent to Wenner. Both agreed that the sender and caption writer could only have been John Lennon. This was the mercurial John waving his reconciliation with Paul in Jan Wenner's face. It's a fairly stunning repudiation of the earlier narrative and a great metaphor for the flimsiness of historical evidence. Hagen relates that Paul gave him a big hug 
and an incredible studio tour, showing him Beatles memorabilia, playing Heartbreak Hotel on Bill Black's bass, and Strawberry Fields on the Mellotron. You know, so all of the things that Paul does, I'm sure, when anyone comes to, <laughs> to his house. So there you go. Thanks again for the great podcast. I always look forward to new episodes and enjoy exploring your archive as well. Love, peace, and strawberries, Emma. Oh, Emma, thank you so much for getting back in touch so swiftly and apologies for my own tardy reply, but that was absolutely fascinating. That is exactly what I want from these emails. Like, if it's not some personal story or an over-aggrandization of the work that I do on this show, what I really want is to learn from you guys as well. If there's something that I haven't included in an episode, if it's a factoid or a piece of trivia that I've not touched on, whether it's directly you know, related to an episode or just something that you might think I'll find of interest, please do what Emma has done here and go the extra mile and email it into the show. I am learning as much as any of you out there, and that, for me, was absolutely fascinating. What, what, what a cool story. And, yeah, it's certainly eye-opening to the way Lennon works, the way McCartney works, and even the way Jan slash Jan Renner works. So, Emma... Thank you so much for that once again. And our second and last email is from someone who is very active on the Paul or Nothing Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. His name is Broderick Harper, and he says, Hi Sam, instead of writing my usual rubbish on Twitter, I thought it was time you got an email off me. I've just finished part two of Driving Rain and about to start part three. First, I'd like to say, you're getting better and better to such a degree that the content in the first two parts has to be up there with any podcast. One thing I love about us Macca fans is that whilst we all love him, we nearly all disagree on what we love about him, i.e. my weird total indifference to tug of war. Incidentally, Get It is a welcome highlight for me. And I'd argue that those differences are more pronounced with this album than any other, being Driving Rain, of course. I have to say that when I first heard Driving Rain, I agreed with a lot of the press reviews that it was his worst album. However, repeated plays elevates it a little higher. Incidentally, I do maintain a ranking of every Macca and Wings album, which is most predominantly Macca original material. So uh, Run Devil Run or Liverpool Sound Collage are not included, but the Fireman and Twin Freak stuff is. Back to Driving Rain though, despite not liking it much more than my bottom three, aka Tug of War, Pops of Peace and Off the Ground, I have to give Paul credit for at least being a lot more daring than he was on any of those quote-unquote safe albums. It started the comeback period when Paul at last got back to the fuck you lot, I'm a Beatle, I'll do what I want mentality, something he did brilliantly on McCartney 2, which he has kept true right up to the present day. Driving Rain has three true Macca classics for me. She's Given Up Talking is another brilliant female sympathetic take from Paul. Your Way is a lovely country sounding track, plus a track that is in my top 10 of all of his numbers, Riding Through Jaipur. All three are very different, and there's other great numbers like Tiny Bubble. Yes, it's a bit twee, but it's a lovely sounding song, as is the excellent Heather. So, in terms of top tier tracks, as a percentage, there's more on Driving Rain than on Flaming Pie. But the problem is, is that five of those tracks on Driving Rain are in my all-time Macca bottom 20, with the hideous freedom. No, Sam, he shouldn't be given any praise because of the subject matter. It's terrible, and I nearly crashed my car when one reviewer saw it as a highlight. Plus, the 
please, please, please let it end, rinse the raindrops. These, along with Ebony and Ivory, are my three least favourite tracks of all time. Take those two out and suddenly it's an album that, since McCartney 2, is only beaten by Press and Flaming Pie. It's a brave album by Paul, but too uneven. It was great to see a nearly 50-year-old in the throwaway 2001 time trying to do something different. Incidentally, my top five Macca albums are Band on the Run, London Town, McCartney 3, McCartney 2 and Rushes. I am very much looking forward to what you think of this Fireman classic. It's great that we can all disagree. People will already be swearing at their devices after hearing my faves. Take Vanilla Sky. I watched the film, which was a bit of a disappointment, but then I heard the theme tune. It was at that moment I thought, Macca is back! And I went out and bought the film's soundtrack. Great tune by Letfield Africa Bombarda on there as well. A bit of backstory. Having got into Wings, not Paul or the Beatles, after seeing them on top of the pops for Let Em In, I was immediately hooked, but then became indifferent to Paul after the disappointing but still good Flaming Pie. Bringing up my two lovely children, who are similar age to you in fact, interfered with listening and keeping up to date with the music, so Paul became a bit of an irrelevance. Liked the singles of Flaming Pie, but as I wrote earlier, Vanilla Sky got my Macca juices flowing again. It's such a hauntingly touching melody slash lyric. That then inspired me to buy Wingspan, which then inspired me to catch up on all of the earlier Wing stuff, plus the 20 years or so on later. I have virtually all of his stuff now, listened to it, loved it, and of course, ranked it. Looking forward to what seeing you and the wonderful Ken think of Driving Rain. As you are indifferent to Vanilla Sky, I'm very curious as to what you'll make of the similar sounding Chaos, my sixth favourite Macca album. Keep going, my friend, and we're honestly not bothered if it's six years between album reviews when they are this good Broderick Harper. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I am literally red in the face. I am blushing. Thank you so much, Broderick. You have been a stalwart of the Paul or Nothing uh, Twitter page, you know, uh, something that we on social media are always after is interaction and you always interact with posts you like you retweet you comment that is already more than i could ever hope for from a listener but thank you for all of those touching things you've said about the show and thank you for the incredible amount of detail in that email there folks that was about two a4 pages worth of his opinions there i hope you've managed to process at least some of them I love the image of you nearly crashing your car with someone called <laughs> Freedom, a highlight. Um, yeah, very interesting top five, especially having McCartney 3 and Rushes in there. Um, as a little sneak peek, just for you, bro, everyone else cover your ears. I'm listening to Rushes now in preparation for doing that episode with my good friend Tom Quee. And yeah, I definitely like it a lot more than Strawberry's Ocean Ship Forest. Um, but by now you've probably listened to parts three and four and I know that we will 100% agree on riding into Jaipur as well. That is an all-time top 20 Macca classic. I know Dylan Seavey feels the same way as well. Um, yeah, the uh, Vanilla Sky song, not that into it. I've listened to it again in preparation for this email. Still not that resonant with me. Uh, maybe I'll like it more when I see the disappointing movie though. Who knows? Again, Broderick, thank you so much for that email there. That was absolutely wonderful to read when I got it, and even more so, uh, more wonderful to read out for everyone now. 
Again, folks, if you want to be like either of my two correspondents there, drop us an email at paulmcconeypodgmail.com. Right, for the socials, let's plough through it. Follow us on Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod for the Paul or Nothing sister blog. Check out paulmcconeypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. You can check out all new episodes of Macca in Your Attic on our YouTube page as well. If you don't know what Macca in Your Attic is, what have you been doing? Where have you been? Are you under a rock? It is our side show. It's a visual show. It's not just the audio where me and a guest, most people who have been on the show before, or people who will be on the show in the future where we go through their quote-unquote attic or beetle room and they show me five unique interesting rare or valuable items from their collections as well as the stories behind them if you like this show you will love that one as well if you want to help out the show right now in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a review on whatever platform you're watching on, whether it's a like, a tick, a thumbs up, some stars, or even a nice comment. Maybe even a retweet, a post on a Facebook group. Re- you know, recommend us to a friend. Anything you can do like that is greatly appreciated and builds the Paul or Nothing family, of course. And finally... If you want to help out the show directly, please join our Patreon page. Of course, Patreon, as I'm sure you know, is the platform by which you can support independent content creators such as myself. It's not just a gimme, though. It's not just a GoFundMe. It is something that will allow you to gain access to premium Paul or Nothing content. You get instant access to all interviews, so anything I record with someone else will immediately go on the Patreon unedited, so you get the whole thing, plus my lovely mug on camera as well. You get one week early access to all completed episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get two days early access to all episodes of Macca in your attic. You get access to scripts. Lost episodes of Paul or Nothing, unreleased episodes of Paul or Nothing, bonus episodes from other projects that I've been working on. I put all of my guest appearances on other podcasts on there as well, all in one handy location. And there is also the bonus Patreon vlog where I do a, a bonus episode every week or so. Uh, the, the last one I, I did, I went through all of my Beatle books. So that was a lot of fun. So yeah, if that interests you, if you want to help support the show, help see us grow, help me allow you know, to get access to new content to review, uh, not including the 7 Inches singles box set, then please consider joining our wonderful Patreon family, people including, but not limited to, Samurai Blues, Stephanie Bradley, Louise Overberg, Austin Rapp, John Carp, Brian Brigman, Annie McNeil, Percy Thrillington, David Stiberski, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twelly, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Broderick Harper, Chris Atkinson, Mr. Bowie, Mr. Bowie, Mr. Bowie. I can't remember how we said that. Thank you, bro. Richard Binnington, Teresa Brader, Cheryl McCoy, Lou DiLonardo, Robert A. Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, and my main man, Matt Phillips. Right, folks, after all of that, quite a lengthy intro there, one of the long ones we've done lately. Let's just leap right into the show. This is my interview with Daffa Threes on his book, The Beatles in 1963. One, two, three, go me. Now, everyone, it's time for me to bring on today's guest. He's the author of the upcoming publication, The Beatles in 63, a book that really offers a hitherto unseen level of detail on a specific time in The Beatles story. I'm so excited to talk about this today. And the author has very kindly decided to come and join us to discuss slash shamelessly plug it. Everyone, will you please welcome to the show, David Reese. Dude, thank you so much for coming on. I am so excited to talk about... The Beatles in 63. Thank you. And it is already out. Oh, it, is. it is. Oh, my gosh. 
I, I, it's, it's just taken me so long to actually get this interview <laughs> arranged. I thought he was yet to come out. When, when did it come out? How long has it been out on shelves? I think it came out on the 28th of October. 28th of October. Excellent. So and, uh, and has it been doing the, the numbers? Have you been satisfied with the, uh, with the sales so far? I have no idea. I, I, I did it because I wanted to do it. I wanted the fun of doing it. So whether it sells or not is out of my control, really. And yeah, I'd rather be happy with the book and have a good time doing it and sell a few copies than be dissatisfied and sell 100,000. So there you go. I guess that shows how much of a shill I am then, because I'd probably be on the complete opposite scale of the spectrum there. <laughs> but, you know... Seeing as we haven't spoken officially before, I thought it would be best if we started with a few generic uh, quickfire questions. It's not really that quickfire, but it allows us to get to know you a little bit better. So starting off, when did you first get into the Beatles and what are your some of the uh, earliest memories of the band? Well, I suppose, I mean, I do remember what Love Me Do um, at the time. Um, the thing that I can specifically remember um, back in 1963, I was a cathedral chorister. And on Fridays, we had sport in the afternoon, and then we had tea, and then we had choir practice, and then even some at 5.30. And between tea and choir practice, we usually had about five So I'd run the precincts to be Smith, buy my enemy, then run back with it, just getting back in time for... Um, choir practice, and I will always remember opening the enemy to page five, where the top 30 was, and seeing that Please Please Me had entered the chart at number 70. And I thought, yes, because I had heard the record and I thought, this is a really great record. And I think it went to 17531. So that was my very, that was my really first memory. But I do remember Love Me Do at the time. Um, so I, I had heard of the Beatles before then, but that's the one specific thing I remember pinning it down was that day when I opened the enemy and saw it was 17. Now in the book, uh, one of the very first reviews of Please Please Me, I think it's it, it's either Enemy or Melody Maker. Uh, they say that this is going to be an album that will really please the people who are already fans of the Beatles. And now you've already just said you were aware of Love Me Do as was coming up the charts. I'm guessing you were one of these people that were quite a, ahead of the curve then, I guess. You were, you were into the Beatles before it was cool. Is that safe to say? I was, no, I think that's unfair, bearing in mind that everyone in Liverpool had known them for years. Yeah. Um, well, the Please Please Me album, the, 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 the memory I have of Please Please Me, that was the single coming into the chart. The album didn't come out, I think, for another two and a bit months. Mm -hmm. So I think by the time the album came out, they were, you know, as, as household names you could be back in 1963, bearing in mind how the media was. I mean, there was... There was the light program and there was Radio Luxembourg. You had the four pop newspapers. There was no coverage in the nationals. You know, there was very little opportunity to be on television performing, certainly nationally. So um, I think I think it's one of those it's one of those slow burns where from you know January the first of '63 through until the album came out. I think you know bit by bit people were becoming aware of them. And please, please, me was so different from anything we'd ever heard before. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I think a lot of us were were into them very early on in that respect, but way behind Liverpool, obviously. 
There's a very good uh, Billy Connolly uh, stand-up comedy routine where he's talking about just how bland music was in the 50s and the early 60s. And then he heard Bob Dylan and Elvis and the Beatles for the, for the very first time. Like, can people, especially, you know, let's just say someone of my age or even younger, can the people really comprehend just how much of a flash in the pan the Beatles were and how much it reinvigorated, you know, the love of music amongst, amongst the youth and, and indeed ev everyone else in the country? Um, no, I don't think you can. I, I was thinking that um, that in the United States, um, Taylor Swift has number one album mm -hmm. and Revolver's number two. And I'm thinking, will the Taylor Swift album be number two in 50-something years' time? And of course it won't. So the impact of the Beatles, and why I think it's they're even they're so relevant today, is because... I know, you know, a lot of people still listen to the music from the 50s and 60s, but there's something about the 60s that is so ingrained in our collective minds because, mainly because of the Beatles. I mean, there were so many other acts as well. But the Beatles, there was nothing like them before and there's been nothing like them since, and there will never be anything like them again. I, I remember one of the things I um, used to say to people, if, if we go to 1963, if you go, if you... So it's 60 years next year. So we're still listening to the Beatles from 1963 now. In 1963, 60 years earlier was 1903. <laughs> we listen to any music from 1903 in 1963? And the answer is no. And I guess that we will still be listening to the Beatles in 2063. I mean, we will. There's no question. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I, I don't think anyone realised in 63, including the Beatles, exactly what was going to happen. There's a running, it's it's kind of a running gag in the book, but I, I I quote it because it keeps being mentioned so many times, how Ringo, whenever he's interviewed, says that when it's all over, which they expected it to be like the following year, he was going to up a, open up a hairdressing salon in Liverpool. So it's mentioned, I think, about six times because he keeps saying, oh, I'm going to open a hairdressing salon when it's over. And you just think, I, th I really think they believed that's what was going to happen. It would be, they would be a flash in the pan for a year maybe. I don't think anyone had any idea of what they were going to become. It is insane to consider that they didn't think that they were going to go any further with this. And something I actually really loved throughout the book is the kind of uh, laissez-faire attitude a lot of the publications seem to have towards them. Like, oh, it's just another act from Liverpool. They're pretty big over there. We might get a couple of good singles out of them. And uh, there's a definite dramatic irony to the entire piece where, you, you know, it's it, it's almost like Titanic. You're like, oh, there's going to be an iceberg soon. But, but it's an iceberg of positivity and of love and of absolute brilliant music. And <laughs> the kind of wry look I had on my face whilst reading most most of the quotes was like, hey, you didn't even have any idea, did you? It's a well, that's, that, that's true. I mean, I the, the, I've been asked, why did I pick 63? And I think that that, not necessarily musically, but that I think is the most important year of the Beatles' career because they came back from Hamburg on January the 1st, the last time they played Hamburg, and John had said, we should never have gone to Hamburg that last time because Love Me Do was in singles charts and they were out of the country. And But on January the 1st, they came back. It was that famous winter of 62, 63. The first, they had a five-day tour in Scotland. They couldn't get to the first gig because of the snow. They played one gig. They played to, it varies, an estimated 12 to 24. I've worked out it's probably about 20 people at one gig. 
in Dingwall um, because up the road in a place called Strathetha, which is just outside, there was a local band playing and a thousand people showed up there. So, you know, consider that, that the Beatles and this band played in the same location pretty much at the beginning of January. 20 chose to come to the Beatles, a thousand chose to go to these people. And then by the end of the year, they were six weeks away from being on the Ed Sullivan show. Even today, if a band came along on the 1st of January and um, were playing gigs in front of 20 people, and by the end of the year, they were going to be seen by 73 million people on television. And in that time period, they had four number one hit singles and two number one albums and EPs that charted in the singles chart. Mm -hmm. Even today, I know, you know Taylor Swift had like 10 singles in the top 10, but that's through streaming. That's not people going out and buying a copy of a record. Um, so it, it wouldn't even happen today, even with the, the amount of media we have and how people, how everything's instantly accessible. I don't think it would happen today. No, and I mean, even if it did happen today, it would be because of all the gains that the industry made with bands like the Beatles. Like, oh no, you you promote them, you you you, you, yes. you put them everywhere. This is very much uh, a self-made story. Just a couple of lads driving around in a van at the start. Like, it's 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 very humble. And one of the things I was really drawn to the book right away in those in those first few pages is how. They are the Beatles, but not the quote-unquote Beatles as we know them. This, you know, uh, like like I say, they're still playing shows to dozens of people. People outside of Liverpool don't really know who they are, which is a hilarious notion. Uh, it's the book itself is kind of like a catalogue of their final days as mortal men. I'd say. Well, there are, I, I I can't remember which town it was, but I do remember how they played a gig somewhere in March and they came back in November at big tour. And the difference was, they said, when we played here in March, we could walk around the street, no one re recognised us. Mm. November, they couldn't, they couldn't even set foot outside the venue. They had to have, bring, have food brought into them, all this kind of stuff. Um, I also, you know, part of the book is nostalgic for people that were there at the time and mm -hmm. will recall, oh, yes, I remember that. But for younger people, I wanted to get across the fact that in 1963, there were no credit cards. People... A lot of people didn't have phones in their houses, so they have to go down to the end of the street, go into a phone booth to make a phone call. People, uh, a lot of people didn't have cameras. So in the book, you'll see that there are a lot of photographs of mm -hmm. the storytellers taken around that era. The reason that there are some that don't have a photograph there is because they never had a photograph taken themselves because they didn't have a camera. Um, and also, I think if you told teenagers that that back in the day, if you wanted to buy a ticket, you had two options. One, send off a postal order and a self-stamped self address envelope, or queue upside, go outside, go to the venue, to the ticket office. By the end of the year, people were queuing outside venues for up to a week before the ticket office opened. They would spend all night out on the, on the pavement. They would be rained on. Their parents would come in the dead of night with some bovril and a sandwich to keep them going, and we're fine with that. Nowadays, if you want to buy a ticket, you just do it on your computer and it's done with it. I wonder how many AIDS acts would have the support they have if people had to make that effort to go and see them. And you have to be pretty impressed that teenagers were prepared to spend a week 
sleeping on the pavement uh, just to buy a ticket. Oh, yeah. No, no. You had actual fans back in those days, as in fanatics, the, the derivative right. of, of, of the word. Like, I mean, I can say right. I'm a fan of Paul McCartney, but I just went on his website. I, I became a friend of McCartney and I got my tickets very simply. I, um, I mean, I, I remember I was staying in a hotel in London a few years ago working, working on this project. And apparently Justin Bieber had been staying at the same hotel and there were about there were maybe 12 girls outside 12 now when the Beatles were playing in 63 at the end there'd be 1200 outside a hotel they'd be screaming their heads off the 12 Justin Bieber fans were just standing there vacantly not <laughs> saying a word I mean they just and I would walk by them every time I went in the hotel and I and I kept saying to them, Justin has left the building, which of course they didn't understand the reference there at all. Um, and I just thought, wow, this is a difference. It really is a difference. I mean, we don't know how fortunate we are. I mean, the 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 idea that the Beatles may have had a TikTok and an Instagram account that would have been too much exposure. I mean, and we wouldn't have books like this that actually go into a level of detail that we haven't really got before. And I wanted to know about that. I wanted to know why you chose to do it in this way, the the what, when, the who, the why, why it was presented in that way. Uh, was there ever a point where you were going to write this as more of a narrative, or was this always going to be a very factual, diary-based exp- exploration of 1963? Well, I I did a book about 15 or so years ago called Rock and Roll, which was the history of popular music from 1955 to 2005, I think it ended. And it was a big coffee table book, but there's also only so much you can get in. If you're doing 60 years, you know, you're limited in what you can put in. And it was covering everything. So you'd have a reference to this act and then that act and whatever. With the Beatles, I just came up with the idea of 63. I'm not sure why. I just I just woke up one morning and said, I'm going to write a book about the Beatles in 1963. <laughs> And I then decided, I, again, I don't know why. And it's interesting because the feedback I've had from people was the format is no one's ever done before, which is that so you read what they did on a certain day and then separate from that, underneath that, will be a story from somebody that either knew them, met them, anything to some some connection with them in, in one way or other. So, so January the 1st, when they came back from Hamburg, they had played through past midnight. And on the bill in Hamburg were Johnny and the Hurricanes. And I believe it or not, I found the organist from Johnny and the Hurricanes living out in Ohio. And so he told me the story about remembering um, playing with him in Hamburg. And he very proudly remembered that Johnny and the Hurricanes were paid more than the Beatles. That was yes. important to him. <laughs> So that's January the 1st. And then January the 2nd, the Keith gig in Scotland that was cancelled, I found one of the guys in the band that were the support act who had to play both sets that night because the Beatles didn't show up. And then you get into fans who saw them. Um, and then there, you know, there's some famous people in the book, you know, Rod Argent and the Zombies came with a fabulous story for me. Peter Asher, who obviously, you know, Jane Asher's brother. So there's a whole story there about Paul living in in there in the Ashes house in Wimpole Street, and um, so there's a wide range, and there are lots of fans who have some great stories to tell. Um, so that was really the idea was just to write this is what happened on this day, and here's a story from someone that was there that day. 
so to speak. So something I really enjoyed about the book, um, I mean, just to be fully confessional, I'm terrible at reading. Unless I've got uh, an author to interview, I'm really bad at sitting down and reading a book. But quite quickly, I, I realised that this is... It's so, I mean, I love nonfiction. I, I could go through an encyclopedia and be as engaged as someone who like reads The Curious Instant of the Dog in the Nighttime or something like that, or War and Peace. I actually found this format to be really engaging because there's, there's, there's the kind of the who, what, when, why, and then a, a very personable, personal little nugget at the end with, with those quotes. And it, and it really recontextualized it for me. And something that was highlighted with all of those quotes and stories was, that the Beatles were not alone in their own success and there were lots and lots of people along the way who helped them. Was that something you wanted to consciously emphasise in the book? I don't know whether I... I think I think that just comes into play subconsciously. I think that, you know, Neil As what Neil Aspinall did was just, you know, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, he just did everything for them. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, George Martin didn't really come into play... In the you know until slightly later, I mean, people realised how important he was, but it was only when the Beatles developed musically in the following years that George Martin kind of became iconic, and then obviously Epstein um, is a significant figure because without him, we probably might never have heard of them. So um, I, I think that just came to be through the research I was doing. So. I mean, I think I've been, I've been through every local newspaper from 1963 that there was at the time, even newspapers that you'd think, why would they cover a story? So I went through, so I tried to find everything I possibly could um, and, and also join up dots because they're, you know, they're, they're mysteries about every, every year in their career. So I tried to join up the dots to try and make sense of things. And it just evolved of itself, I think it just it, it. I didn't lead the, you know the. I just followed where it took me really. So um, and I obviously wanted to get all the people that were involved with them into the book because they're, you know, just as important. Of course, the general Beatles story, as we know, is from sixty-two to seventy, and like you say, most authors would have to cull what publishers might call less interesting content and so did you feel freer to explore parts of the narrative that were still left untold were you like yes I can't wait to cover this bit because no one's ever talked about this bit um no I don't think I don't think I did that I mean one of the interesting things is you know talking about reading books I'm re I'm right now I'm reading Mark Lewison's expanded edition of tune in it's taken me this you can't time. mention mark lewison whilst plugging your own book no. of course i can because without mark you know i mean I, I give credit to mark in the book because he helped me enormously in getting to the finishing post but um so i mean sorry i've got a, you threw me now because i was trying to answer that question I what the question um, was exploring untold parts of the beatles story oh yes yeah, sorry yes yeah. so anyway so I believe it or not, found a gig that no one has ever referenced, ever, which you go, that's not possible. So I told Mark about this. He said, no, you're on your own on this one, because he, <laughs> I think he felt after 60 years, it's not possible you missed a gig. So let me explain. So, and, and, and there's, there are many references in the book to these particular two people. So there was a, there was a, a married couple who were known as Mar and Pa Regan, and they lived 
in outside Birmingham, and they owned four venues. One of them was the Plaza Old Hill, and they also had a place in Kings Heath and a place in Handsworth. And what they often did was they would have bands play at two of the venues in one night. So they'd play at Handsworth, then get down the road, drive to uh, Old Hill and play a gig there. So I've... so. I had a real mystery about a Plaza Old Hill gig on, I think, July the 5th. And Bev Bevan tells the story that he was drumming and the Beatles showed up late, so he had to keep, they had to keep playing a bit longer. And then I met somebody who was a support band, and I found on the Beatles Bible website that one of these guys wrote a, wrote a note saying, what are you talking about? We've supported the Beatles that gig, and I've never even heard of you. So I thought there's something weird going on there. So I discovered that they had played Old Hill the previous Saturday and they came back and played the following Friday. And you go, no, it was June, July. There's no way on earth they would have done that. It's never been mentioned. And it was a clue bit by bit. I found a woman who said, oh, I remember I went to see, I went to see them. I went to the market and I bought a brand new dress, which is something that comes through in the book as well, that so many young fans always had their hair done and bought a dress before they went to the Beatles. And also the other one, they would show up at gigs. Um, these would be the clubs rather than the big venues later on the year. They'd show up with their hair in curlers and they go in the ladies and they take the curlers out and then go out to the dance floor and that would be their, their idea of a fun night out. So, so the old Hill gig, I found somebody that said, uh, I went to see them. I, I went and bought a dress at the market. And I said, oh, so that was Friday. July 5th. She said, no, it wasn't. It was Saturday because the market was, wasn't open on Fridays. And I wasn't at school that day. And if it had been a Friday, it would be. So I went on a Saturday, not a Friday. So I'm going, okay. So that means there were two separate gigs. And then this went on and I then interviewed people in, that played in support bands and I suddenly realized the support bands didn't know each other because they were playing at separate gigs, six days apart. And then finally, I, and I actually saw the diary entries. I found a woman who wrote in her diary that she went to see them on the Saturday. And I found a guy who wrote in his diary he went to see them on the Friday. So it was one of those cases where all the people that saw them thought they were seeing them on, on the same day. And they were actually seeing them twice on two separate days. And so there was a there was a, an unknown gig that's now been known. <laughs> uh, Lewison is throwing his papers up in the air right now. No, he, I've told him about this. And, you know, <laughs> and, and the thing so was funny. that when when he started out with the Chronicle, mm-hmm. it was even before the internet existed. So he had to go with what he could find, and his research back then was impeccable and. And I say in the book that, you know, that's my source. I mean, I start out taking his book as writing down all the things they did on specific days. And he acknowledges that, you know, that there were one or two things that weren't right because the information back then was was incomplete. Um, you know, gigs that he had a wrong date on because, I mean, there's a famous, this is not, this is not Mark, but there's a famous gig. And it's, a, it's, it's interesting because of people's memories and how, people's memories do fail them. So they were supposed to play a gig at the Black Cat in Sheffield that was organized by Pete and Jeff Stringfellow. And uh, so, and it was, I think, February the 12th, I think. And Stringfellow realized that he could sell more tickets than he could 
uh, fill the venue with. So he decided to postpone the gig to the Azena Ballroom in April. But he always said it was February the 12th, and I think he probably said it was because between February and April, they'd gone and played the City Hall in Sheffield twice. And I think he wanted to be the first person that brought them to Sheffield. Mm. So I found someone that saw them at the Azena Ballroom who says that it was on February the 12th because it was her birthday. But she's wrong. And I think what happened was, I reckon she was bought tickets to see them at the Black Cat for her birthday, but she's forgotten it was postponed and then done at the Azena Ballroom. But the extraordinary thing about that gig is there is a very well-known poster, and if you just go online and key in Beatles' Azena Ballroom, you will see Sunday, February the 12th, the Beatles' Azena Ballroom, Please please me, number one. February the 12th was not a Sunday or Saturday. I think it was a Tuesday. They had the Beatles Bootle logo, which had not been designed until the following month. And Please Please Me had not yet got to number one. So someone (laughs) created this poster after the event, but used the February date rather than the April date. And I've read somewhere that People buy that poster for like three thousand oh dollars, and it's gosh. totally it's completely fake. <laughs> and the problem and this is one of the problems with the internet. Once it's out there, it's forever out there. No one's ever going to pull that back and go, "That gig was not in February; it was in April." So it will it will always be written down as being in February. That's so true, actually, because all the good Beatles books throughout history have always carried on and had reprints because they've mostly been correct. But all of the kind of more sordid tabloidy ones like Dark Horse or Blackbird about Paul McCartney, they do just fade into obscurity and all of their inaccuracies die with them. But yeah, you are, you are totally right. Uh, my gosh. I couldn't. I, I mean, I, I, and that's why, you know, it's, it, it was very important to me that I didn't go back to pre, I mean, there are instances where I have referenced earlier books, but I, I try to be really careful, which is why I've gone back to the, the source. Now, obviously, you've got to rely on the fact that when someone wrote an article the day after they put a gig, they got the information right. It's possible that they didn't, but there's not much, much more you can do about that. You've just got to go with what was written at the time rather than what was written in hindsight. And so the majority of the book is about what actually the time and with people's stories i have edited stuff out where i know they are wrong and i didn't want to i didn't want to diminish their story i mean i had someone say i saw them in cardiff in 63 and tom jones and herbert Herbert's on the bill well that's just not true that's how they remember it Mm -hmm. but i i took things like that out because i thought if you leave that stuff in which anyone with the passing knowledge of the beatles knew to be wrong they would go well their story doesn't has no credibility to it so I had to remove things that I just knew were totally inaccurate. But we do we do remember things wrong. I mean, well, this, is why, this is why I need you to do Beatles 66, because one of my late father's uh, true Beatles memories was seeing them uh, in, in the West Midlands area with my grandmother and that a yellow submarine descended from the ceiling. And I, I, I argued with him to, to no end to blue in the face. Dad, that never happened. They never played Yellow Submarine live. They didn't perform that on the Revolver tour. I was like, no, Sam, that's what happened. <laughs> and now go to your room, young no, man. <laughs> oh, I, know. 
I have, I mean, this has got nothing to do with the Beatles, but I remember this so vividly, I can't tell you. 1966, summer of 66, I go to the Oval to watch the second day of the Test match. And Dennis Amos scores a century. And back in the day, you could get by the evening news or the evening standard in the, at the ground. Mm-hmm. So I bought the evening standard and they had a stock press column on the, on the last page on the bottom. They so had to turn the paper sideways to read it. And it said three policemen shot dead near Wormwood Scrubs, which was the famous Harry Roberts murder mm-hmm. where they were stopped. Well, the only problem is Dennis Amos did not score a century in that match. He, he, his debut century was the following year. And the day that I went to see the test match was not the day of the police killings. I remember those three things as one event, and they're three separate events. And I still remember it, but I have to be wrong because history is proven to be wrong. And yet, I still remember it that way. Luckily, I'm I'm humble enough to go, well, it didn't happen. There are some people who go, oh, no, it did. Oh, it definitely happened. It's like, no, it didn't. But but people's memories stick with them, and, and you can't shift people from their memories if, if they're convinced. Oh, no, McCartney is is convinced to this day. He mentioned it on every tour that Jimi Hendrix performed Sergeant Pepper for them a week after hearing the song, that, uh, you know, where's Eric Clapton to help me retune my guitar? Didn't happen, Paul. I'm, I, it's a fantastic story. If you have to choose between the legend and the story, print the legend, of course. Uh, there's the other example of John saying he really loved... Um, what, what, what was it? Uh, here, there, and everywhere in the Alps, but they were filming Help in the Alps. So how could they talk? Yeah, I mean, good thing the Beatles aren't a main source in their own narrative. Because, <laughs> well, I think that's very important because I think what's happened, certainly with Paul, he wants to make sure his legacy is all the good stuff, and and therefore he would rather tell great stories about things that might not be true and we'll gloss over the things that, you know. I mean, the very first book I had published was called Starfile, and it was a chart book for 1977. It was British and American singles and albums, but it was, you know, so you could listen to all the songwriters, all the late, I mean, listen to everything. And I did a little section in the back of trivia. And um, one of the, <laughs> I remember, it might have been the second book, I did, I did, I did them in consecutive years, but... I remember interviewing Billy Joel, and he told me a story about he played some sessions with Shadow Morton before he made it. He did some sessions, and so I said, "Oh, well, what did you play? What did you play on?" And uh, he said, oh, "I have actually no idea." And of course, one of them is Leader of the Pack, and the opening of Leader of the Pack is a piano note. Mm-hmm. So I, at the end of the book, I put in the fact that Billy Joel—it was like trivia at the back—I put in Billy Joel played piano on the Shangri-La's Leader of the Pack. Billy Joel now thinks he is the piano player and leader of the pack because it's been repeated so many times that he's now led himself to believe that that's, that's um, what it is. There's a, there's a wonderful guy, um, long retired now, called Pete Frame. He used to do the family trees. Those wonderful, beautifully manuscripted histories of bands. And he got so tired of people ripping him off that he used to put fake stuff in. <laughs> waiting to see when enemy or manager maker would put this in a real story. And he's got a whole catalogue of things that he made up just for that reason alone. So I was very tempted to put something in the Beatles book that was wrong. 
But I thought, no, I can't, I can't do that. Well, going from the grand stories to what one of the elements... Well, I had to rewrite this question several times because I really didn't want to give the wrong impression of the book, but something I really enjoyed and something that was present in Peter Jackson's recent docuseries was the amount of day-to-day mundane trivialities and events that happened and were happening to the Beatles in this period. I I, I loved, like, you know, George having to just go and get a new guitar because his guitar doesn't work anymore and... John being told off by a landlady for flirting with some girls outside. That kind of stuff for me, I found to be more interesting than say, oh yeah, they did this album called Please Please Me. You may have heard of it, you know. Uh, was that something you enjoyed discovering, you know, just the the minutia of the Beatles' lives at this time? Yes, because I think we kind of know everything about the Please Please Me album, although I will state on record now, there's this ongoing thing that, they had done all but the final track, and it was at the end of the night. They all went to the canteen. They said, what should we do for our closing number? And there was talk about doing... This plan they were going to do, Twist and Shout. It's just nonsense that they were, going to, they were, they were contemplating doing another song. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, yeah... So I love the minutiae because it hadn't been covered before. I mean, I mean, how many millions of words have been written about the Beatles? I mean, how many books have there been about the Beatles? I, I can't even, I mean, it's, I, has it reached a thousand yet? Probably, I don't know. So I had to come up with stuff that no one had ever come up with before. So, so you're absolutely right. I mean, there's so many fun things in there. I mean, I love things like, um, you know, knowing what they had for, for supper when they played, yeah. you know, when they had to bring have food brought into them, things like that, all sorts of little trivial stuff like that, and and that was great because some of the storytellers re- really remembered extraordinary details of things um, that because they've never been approached before, we wouldn't even know about. I mean, one of the the best Paul stories, which again. Um, I had to piece together bit by bit because I was I, I was told this and I thought, well, now wait a minute, working backwards, I can't work out how this all evolved. So when they finished playing Clandidno for a week um, in the summer of 63, they then, soon after that, they did a week in Bournemouth. And there's a story in Tony Bramwell's book about John driving the, the van down the hog's back pass in North Wales and almost crashing the car coming off the road. So I thought, okay, I've got to find out when that was. And I, and I searched through the entire record of their career to find out when they would have been on that road. And the only one was leaving Clandidno. But then I realized that when they're in Bournemouth, Paul, George and Ringo all had their cars with them. So I came to the conclusion that on the Saturday at the end of Clandidno, Neil drove the three of them back to Liverpool then went out to Clendidno, and then on the Saturday, on the Sunday morning, he, Tony Brownwell, and John drove down in the van. And it was then Jan, John said, "Let me drive for a while." Bearing in mind he didn't have a driving license and he was blind as a bat, but I'm guessing they thought, "Well, you know, he's the boss here. We better do as he says." I'm sure if the rest of the Beatles had been in the van, they would have said, "No, John, you're not going to drive." Anyway, <laughs> so they get down, and the reason I know they all had their own cars is because. Ringo scalded his hand on the radiator cap coming back from Bournemouth to London at the end of the Saturday. And there's a photograph of him playing a gig on the Monday with a bandage on his hand. 
So that's fact. George had a little accident with his car in Bournemouth trying to escape from the fans. That's a fact. They're all so, so terrible. So <laughs> then we get into the Paul story. Now, this is the extraordinary thing that I've never read before. So Paul, cousin, Bette Robbins, and her husband, Mike Robbins, they were working in a pub in Ride on the Isle of Wight at the beginning of the year. So when they played at South Sea in April, I think it was, he went over to see them and spend the night there. And that was the day that Julian was born. So Paul went on his own. When they played Bournemouth, uh, I found someone who was staying at Pontins in Brackleshire Bay near Chichester. And she was there for the week and she made friends with somebody. And on, the, on this particular day, she went down to the beach with her brother and then got back. And the friend said, oh, my goodness me, you know who was here this afternoon? She said, well, well who was here? Paul McCartney said, what are you talking about? So Paul McCartney, by this time, Mike and Bette Robbins were working at Pontins that summer. Paul took his father, Jim, in the car to Pontins to see Mike and Bette Robbins. I wouldn't have known that had it not been for this woman that was at Pontins and told me that story. But there's a tie-in with that because Melody Maker at the time wrote the story that Paul showed up late for one, not for the gig itself, but he came back late from being somewhere. And that was obviously Brackenshaw Bay. So you have to piece all these little individual bits and pieces together until you get the complete story. So no one's ever come up with the fact that Paul went to Pontins for an afternoon and signed autographs. He didn't go there to sign autographs. He went to see his cousin, but that's what he ended up doing. <laughs> Again, I mean this with, with no irony or sarcasm whatsoever. That is more fascinating to me than if we ever get to hear the Carnival of Light or something like that. I love the minutiae of that. What it is, is because you're finding out things that, oh, the other Paul, the other Paul story, which, again, because I have evidence of it, it totally makes sense. When they played Abgaveni, John was appearing on Jukebox Jury that night, so he couldn't go down with them. And the story goes that Neil drove the three of them down in the van, they got to Abergavenny, and then Epstein hired a helicopter and flew from Battersea Heliport to the Abergavenny Football Club ground, where it said there were more people waiting for the helicopter arrival that were in the gig, which makes sense because there was a limited amount in the town hall. But I found this guy who said, we were on a train going from Newport to Abergavenny to see the Beatles, and Paul McCartney was on the train. And they got into conversation with him. And when they got to Abergavenny Station, Paul said, oh, I'm going to take a cab. Do you want to ride in the cab with me? So, so these, this, these were four guys who had their own band in, in South Wales. So, um, so that's what happened there. And the, and the one thing I, I, I didn't pursue, and I should have done, I, I didn't have the time to do it, but in their story, they were trying to think of a name for a band and they couldn't come up with one. So Paul had a newspaper with him and there was a court case going on that mentioned the witnesses. And he said, what about that for a name of the band? I have yet to find the newspaper that said the witnesses. Oh. Many people have looked. But so, so apparently Paul didn't go down with them. He took a train. He took, he, he took the train from Paddington down to Newport and then went up to Abergavenny and was on the train with these four young Welsh guys. And the thing was, I know why they're telling the truth is because 
I got the, he sent me a copy of the, uh, the autograph that Paul wrote out for, for one of the guys in the band. So I think, the, I think a story you'll love is when he was living with the Asher family, Paul couldn't get out the front of the house because there were fans there. So he found a place, he found a way he could get to another house, I think next to the Ashers, that was owned by a curb. Yeah. Right? But then he went through, um, he then, I then worked out, and I looked on a map and everything, I worked out, he would then come out through a house, uh, I think it was Cumberland's, whatever the ha- whatever there's a muse behind Wimpole Street, he would then go out through this house to, to make his escape. And I worked out what the house was. And the woman that lived in the house, there was a, it was a, a couple with a son. The woman wrote spy novels and was quite well known at the time, which I discovered. And then I thought, I've got to find the son because I, he's, he must remember the story. So I had to find the son. And he dis- I discovered he died in Leeds about two years before I discovered him. So that was the end of that. But I did have, I do have the name of the people that live in that were living in the house that he used to just walk through to get out. He'd go through their front door to escape from the fan. So it, it's just stuff like that that um, I, I really enjoyed finding out. And you're right, it's we all know about Please Please. We know, you know, the records that got to number one. We know about, you know, being on, doing the Royal Command performance. I mean, all the obvious stuff is there. Uh, I mean, the other one that I've got in the book, when they did Ready, Steady, Go, um, I think October the 4th, Back then, already so ago, they had a miming competition where um, they'd play a current prop record, and I think there were four girls. I think I don't know if it's all girls or what, I can't remember, but they would all have to mime to the record, and then one of the acts that were on that week would pick the winner. And the week the Beatles were on, the first time they were on Ready So Ago, they did Brenda Lee's jump, Let's Jump the Broomstick, and Paul was delegated to be the person that picked the winner. And he picked this, and it's on, you can see this on YouTube. He picked, the one he picked was a 13-year-old girl called Melanie Coe. And three years later, Melanie ran off with a guy, left home. She was still a teenager, ran off with some guy. Her parents were quite well-to-do, and um, they were really upset, and it made the newspapers. No, it's not... Paul no. read the article and wrote, she's leaving home. <laughs> oh, my God. And, and, and Melanie, who's in the book, she has always wondered whether Paul knows that the person he picked to win the miming competition on Ready, Said Go is the inspiration for she's leaving home. And she doesn't know whether he knows that. Oh, the butterfly effect of that situation is, <laughs> I mean, did, did, did her encounter I mean, you with the Beatles? You could not make that up, could you? That is insane. That is absolutely. I mean, did did did, did that cause her to become more rebellious? And Paul created the situation. Like he, was, he was already yeah. rebellious. <laughs> it, yeah, but it's it's, it's like, she was she was quite um, a rebel. Yeah. Now, so um, something else I wanted to talk about with the with with the interviews. Um, did you have any that like were not able to make their way into the book? Did you have any days in 63 where you had like more than one source and you were forced to kill your darlings or anything? Yeah, I, I made the decision early on that whatever, I would only have one story a day. I didn't want to have three stories on one day and none on another day. So there were one or two people that I'm afraid didn't make the final cut because, you know, you kind of overlap and you, you can't focus on whether you've got a story on that day or even whether that person 
has a story on the day that you want them to provide a story, that kind of stuff. So, so I made the decision that it would be one story a day. And then I realized that there were some days, well, there were some days when they didn't do anything, so there wasn't going to be a story, but there were one or two days where I, I mean, the one that's always bugged me, they played St. Helens, and I actually went to St. Helens to find somebody. I even went to the, the, the building where they played is still there, but it's now, there's a restaurant up top, and there's a print, I think a printing place, and there's something else. And I went there, and I went into the restaurant up top, and I said, you know, please, if you can find anybody, here's my phone number, email address, please get in touch with me. I never got anyone for St. Helens. And I mentioned this to Mark, Mark Lewison again, and he said, no, don't even try to get one for every day, because if you do, people won't believe you. Oh, that's, <laughs> I love that. that. Yeah. I mean, if I, had, if I had put, if I had a story for all 365 days, people would go, there's something fishy here. There's no way on earth you can find a story for every single day. I, I think there are 294 days total. But bear in mind, they went to, on holiday in April for two, three weeks, and then they had that holiday in September. So they're probably about 35 days when they were on holiday. So add that up to the 294. So they're probably, what, 30 days in total. I don't have a story. I can live with that. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, but both of my grandparents are from St. Helens. They saw the Beatles that 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 day, but they swore no. that they, they they swore to take their stories to the grave with them. I'm so sorry. Uh. Well, it's interesting because I did find somebody who said, "Oh, I saw them," but it was 62, so I couldn't include them. That was the other interesting thing. People was people would come to me. Yeah, I saw them. They give me this whole story. And then I realised that they were talking about a 1962 gig. It's like I can't use it. Oh. Or like I saw him in the last day of December 62 or the first day of January 64. Sorry, sorry, I can't put it in the book. Well, a, a, a really good friend of mine who I knew I could get a story from, he said, oh, my wife saw them at the Christmas show on January the 4th. So I said, damn it. <laughs> so, so that went out the window as well. So I, I've been very faithful to the... You know, I mean, again, if, if people read the book, they'll realise... I mean, for example, Rod Argent's story. Rod Argent saw them in Bedford in, I think, September. But the bulk of his story is about when the zombies went to Abbey Road to cut Odyssey and Oracle. They were the first non-EMI act to record there. Mm -hmm. And when you think about how Odyssey and the Oracle is now regarded, sometimes in the same breath as Sgt. Pepper and Pet Sounds, and in my opinion, deservedly so, Rod Argent tells the story of how they got into the Abbey Road studios just as the Beatles had finished doing Sgt. Pepper. And the instruments had been left behind, not, not their mm -hmm. own instruments, but instruments so the mellotron that was on sergeant pepper you can hear it throughout odyssey and oracle and it so happens it's there just because it had been left there after john had played it for the sergeant pepper album so so i mean so the story is about that it's not about 63 but but I mean, how can you know it's it's important that that these people tell stories about not about just about what they remember. I mean, there's another, I, I, how I, oh yes. So they, they did a gig up in, it was on the main tour in November. I, th I think it was Nottingham. And I discovered a guy who'd done cartoon drawings of them. Mm. And it had been arranged by the local newspaper that he was going to meet them backstage. And for some reason it never happened. I, I can't remember what were done. I think they were trying to keep people away from them. And I, and I found this guy who now lives in Hong Kong. 
So I thought, oh, I've got to get a story about the, the cartoon. But what was most interesting was that he went on to be the guy that designed all of Slade's costumes. Oh. <laughs> okay, what? Uh, big up Slade there, my local lads from Warsaw. <laughs> so that's, my, yeah. you know, so the, so a lot of the lead on to um, you know events later in life. Oh, there's a guy, the, the guy who saw them in Brighton the first time they went down, he was a photographer of the local newspaper and he took mm -hmm. photos of them. And he finishes stories, his story off by saying that in 1980, he was living in New York or was in New York. And he, when he heard the news, he went straight down to Dakota and took photographs of the fans coming there after John had been killed. So that link, but I mean, 17 years apart, he took them, he took photos of them playing live in Brighton. And then 70 years later, 17 years later, he was at the Dakota taking photographs. So there's a lot of stuff outside 63 as well, but all their stories, you know, they all did something or saw them or met them in 63, but their stories expand beyond that sometimes. You possibly more so than anyone I've ever had on this show must be so well aware of the notion that People can remember a lot of their lives, but there's no one who's ever forgotten about the time they had the most tertiary interaction with the Beatles. Was there anything a little, say, maybe not mundane or irrelevant, but something that you just couldn't include in the book just because it, it wasn't going to fit your narrative? Like, so it was like, oh, he came in my pie shop. And nothing interesting happened. No, I, th no, I think, I, I know if, if anything like that happened, I, the one thing I did do, I remember, and I won't name him, <laughs> he was, he was a, quite a well-known DJ, and I, I just felt it really unnecessary. And I didn't want to get into this, even though we know it happened. He tells a story of a gig, um, which I think he might have been, the, the, you know, the, the MC or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he, he went into, he opened a door to a bathroom and he found John knocking off some young girl on the, on the sink in there. And I thought, I, I, I have no interest in getting to that. I'm not interested in, oh, I'll tell you what I did, I, what I was told, which I didn't have in, and I won't say which Beatle it was. I remember, I was told this story that they did a gig somewhere where it's irrelevant where it was. And they went off to a club afterwards and um, a woman got pregnant that night and she is convinced that this particular beetle is the father of her child. And I didn't, I, I, I just, this is not what this book's about. This is not the sex life of the Beatles. I, I, I have no interest in that. It's, it's irrelevant and I didn't want to sully the book by getting into that, that whole thing. So no, that wasn't of interest to me. I would like a credible author to leap on that grenade, though, and tarnish their reputation with Apple Forever and do that exact book, The Sex Life of the Beatles. Just have it all in one place, this dark necronomicon of salaciousness, and then every other book moving forward doesn't have to ever touch on it again. Well, I do think, I do think it comes across in the book how little quite a few fans thought of John. There's, there's, there's a lot of references to him being offhand, rude, unpleasant, things like that. Um, but I'm just, I'm just putting in the book what, you know, their story. And if they say that, whether, whether it's true or not, is irrelevant. But that's the way they felt. So, I mean, that's the other interesting thing is, so there's, there's a clear dynamic in the first year. George was definitely the best with fans. He responded to them. He made, I mean, there's a lovely story about a girl 
writing to me and saying, uh, I want to marry when I grow up, but please don't tell my sister because she'll want you, you know. And he wrote back and said, I think before we get married, I, I need to meet you first or something like that, whatever. Um, so he definitely responded better to, to the to kids. John was just curmudgeonly and, you know, just was offhand with people and just being John, which I believe was a front in any case to a degree. Paul was all about the business. It was like he he made, the, you know, everyone says it was John. Paul made the thing work. He really did. And all Ringo wanted to do was set up a hairdressing salon. That was that's what the that's what 63 is about in that respect so so yes yeah, so john does a come across i mean there are certain references where they were welcome backstage and john i think one time some girls went backstage because this was all organized by local newspapers and Epstein. they went backstage and john was there with a towel over his head the whole time they were in there and just didn't talk to them would have nothing to do with them but gosh it must have been pretty tiresome you imagine <laughs> Don't even want to. Uh, I'm just looking at a, a, an internet page of uh, a lot of your uh, titles here, including uh, Music Icons John Lennon, which I'm definitely going to have to check out after this. But really? Would, I don't, what, music? Oh, that one. Okay, yes. Yeah. That was okay, that was funny. So that's a German publishing company called Taschen, and they had done film icons. So we got in touch with them and said, why didn't you do music icons? So we did six. And then they, we got. I remember getting emails Saturday morning saying we're, we're counting the rest of them, and <laughs> it's so ridiculous because the guy. So one of them was Hendrix, and he and the guy is so into the imagery of his books that he wanted only the very best photographs. And we were trying to explain to him a photograph of Hendrix in a nightclub in Seattle in 1963 isn't going to be of the greatest quality. Mm-hmm. So the whole reason for doing the books became redundant because the photos were lousy but then they i mean you think about a beatles book think of the photographs that were taken in the early part of their career they're dreadful most of them so um yeah so that's 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 for the the music icon so they're a kind of a little day by day but they're really slim volumes it was really about the imagery than anything else the text just kind of went with the imagery um and we got some great photographs but they were just not good enough for Mr. Tashin. You've got so many books here that seem to span rock and roll in general and the history of rock and roll. And you have many titles here that seem to be very specifically on a single artist. Do you find that doing all of those prior to this gave you the confidence to explore not only the biggest band ever, but also in almost impossibly granular detail? Yes, in the sense that I did a series called Rock Diary but the problem is the moment you have the thing published, it becomes out of date. So, for example, we did a, we, I, I remember we did Coldplay because when we did it like 12, 15 years ago, whenever it was, 12 years ago, they were enormous. But the problem is by the time the book is out, they've just done another tour, so therefore it's out of date. The great thing about the, the Beatles 63 book, it will never be out of date. It, can <laughs> never be, it could be added to, obviously, yeah. because someone might come forward and say, oh, I met them on a train and it would be a great story. But the point is, I will never have to, as it stands right now, it's never going to change. That's what happened in 63. So that, so I kind of learned that, that I don't want to get into doing books that are out of date the moment you've written them. So, so yeah. well, that leads me on to my next question, actually. First of all, I would love the, that, that this book reaches the widest audience possible and then perhaps people will get in contact with you and 
give further information than perhaps like maybe 10 years down the line, get an expanded version, maybe. But the real question I had was, would you ever have any intentions of on doing 64, 65? I will tell you why. Um, 64, I'm not going to the Philippines. I'm not going to. (laughs) Um, The problem is, sadly, I would say that of the 294 stories I have in the book, I would say as many, probably as 20 of them, if not more, have passed away before the book was published. So, I mean, the probably the earliest story in the book I got from someone in 2010. So basically, the book, yeah, you know, when I started the book and I had the idea, I kind of did it as a side project. It wasn't what I was doing you know, every day. And then um, one of the things I did was I, I got, I asked local newspapers to run a story saying, if you saw the Beatles in 63, please contact me. And I, and I got some replies back. And I realized that their stories in email form, because I live in the United States, so phone calls were kind of out of the question. So I realized that email stories were um, kind of limited to a degree because they're not conversational. They just write what they remember and that's it. So I asked a friend of mine by the name of Jan Gammy, who I work with at Decca Records and then at Record Business Magazine, whether she'd be into um, talking to these people on the phone. So she said yes and went nuts and just talked to all these people. And she still talks to some of them and they've become friends of hers. And so in a conversation, so when somebody says something, Jan would then follow it up with a question and that would develop the thing even more. And then she'd tape all the conversations and just write, you know, write them all down and send them to me and I'd edit the stories. So, so the book was finished before COVID. And it was going to be published. So it's it's been pushed back three, if not four years. So a lot of the stories were written at least 10 years ago. So 64 is only one year on from 63. And yet we're 10 years on in terms of talking to people. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid, yeah, I'm sure I could find people in 64. But sadly, I mean, I suppose if I did another 10-year project, they need to be more now. Um, I could do it, but it has taken 10 years out of my life and um, I'm not even sure I'll be around another 10 years. So who knows? But uh, I'm, I'm happy with 63 and leave it there, to be honest, because in, in some ways, if I did 64, it would diminish 63. Mm-hmm. So for me to make my point that 63 was the year, then any other year should be left alone. And really, you couldn't do 65, 60. You couldn't do 65 odds because they really didn't tour that much. They didn't, you know, they were in the studio for days on end, the rest of it. I did have the idea some time ago, Trax, who are this company up in Chorley who sell uh, memorabilia, um, they have a massive archive of stuff from 1967 of people that wrote letters and have notes and things like this. And I think 67 could be done just with stories, without without the text because you know 67 you know it'd be hard to fill out a, a day by day of what they did because a lot of it we, we, we would never find, we'll never find out so that, that's a thought but i doubt it i mean in the sense that every single uh beatles opinion slash fact slash trivia book it has has owed a huge debt to revolution in the head 
this is a format that I would love to see be shamelessly copied to a lesser degree by other uh, other authors. I, I I've really enjoyed this book, and I I want to see McCartney eighty six. I want to see Ringo seventy three. These are these would be topics that would be well worth exploring. And you know the, the happier end of like the notion that the, a lot of these I'm sure Lewison has come across the same thing. Like people who were there in sixteen sixty one, especially sixty three, a lot of them aren't here with us anymore, but you know, as someone who is eternally bitter about the fact that there's not more solo Beatles stuff, at least the people who are were around for that probably are still here with us. So it gives me great hope for the future that something like this could be done about, you know, the McCartney 2 era or Wings Over America. This format with Wings Over America or Wings Over the World, <laughs> oh, my God. Well, it's it's interesting because when I decided to do this, that came into my mind straight away. I just, I just thought, I'm going to do this. This is what happened on this day, and here's a story. And I wanted to separate them. Um, Martin Creasy uh, did a really wonderful book called The Beatles Tours, 1963 to 65. And it's, it's very good. But what he's done, he's, and he interviewed a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people. And, but he's incorporated their stories into the narrative. Mm -hmm. So... You know, if you drift off a little bit, you suddenly go, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a bit confused. <laughs> this guy, who, who's this guy? Why is he, you know? So that wasn't the reason I did it. But but I just decided from day one, and I, and I, I you know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you why I decided. I just decided to do it that way. And I have to say, the one comment everyone makes about the book is the format. They say, what a fantastic idea for a format to do it this way. Um, so I'm really pleased about that because... Um, yeah, I think it's so. You know, you, I, I, I won't say who it is, but someone, a friend of mine, who's kind of Beatle related. He he went. He met Jan recently at um, at an event, and he said her stories are the best thing in the book, which which <laughs> they are. I don't take. I'm not slighted by that. They are the best thing in the book. I don't think he was trying to say that the text I wrote rubbish, but but um, the stories are just. Wonderful. I, I I think some of them, you know, I mean, some of them are a bit, you know, they're just even keeled and not that exciting. But which you're going to have. I mean, it's you know, we're going to have that. But when when the stories are good, they are just absolutely wonderful. And um, yeah, I'm so pleased and grateful for the people to provide the stories. I mean, this, I, I, this is I've got to say this one because I I love this one. I cannot remember how, how I found how I found this person. I, I, it was on a really obscure site, and she had posted something, and she lives in Reno, Nevada. So I thought, I've got to find this person. She was, she was born in Santa Barbara. So her mother emigrated to, to California in the 1950s. She was born in California. And in 1963, she decided, the mother decided to bring her back to England to meet her grandparents and aunts and uncles. Her uncle was at Liverpool Institute with John. The parents were living in Clandidno. And it's so happened. So, so the family came from California. They stayed with the parents in Clandidno. It happened to be the week that the Beatles were playing there. And Uncle John came down from Liverpool to spend you know, the week seeing his niece he'd never met before. So he told them that, oh, I knew John. We were... Art school together, blah blah blah. So he says, "What well, you got to go and see him there, playing in the 
Odeon this week. And he said, no, John must be so tired of people knocking on the dressing room door saying, ah, do you remember me? Anyway, so he finally plucked up the courage to do it. And so he went there and John said, oh, thank goodness, I'm so sick and tired of these people knocking on the door that I've never met before saying they want to talk to me. And now I haven't seen you in years. It's great to see you, John. So they, t- they chatted a bit. And then on the Saturday, they, the, the uncle and John and Paul went out on a boating trip somewhere near, I don't know where it's like, I think they drove like 10 miles away or something and found a little boating thing where you could just go out and go on a little boating trip. And they came back and it was the guy's niece's fourth birthday on the Saturday. So John and Paul went round to the house and sang happy birthday to her. And I just, I mean, uh, and, and of course she doesn't remember it, but her mother told her the story in the 1990s and her mother since passed away. So she related, relayed to me the story that her mother told her about that day when, and, and there were, and I think that the, the, the parent, the grandparents, they had lodges in their house. Well, no, maybe maybe it was a cleaning lady or something. And there was a mother and a daughter. And they came back after John and Paul had left. And they said, oh, you never guess who's been there. <laughs> they said, it was those two guys and the Beatles and the daughter who was a teenager said, don't be ridiculous, because they weren't. And, and there's another story from when they played Western Supermare. You, you, you know the famous go-karting photographs? Yes. So yes. Okay. So the the daughter of the the family that ran that the daughter went up to that was on Breen Down, which is outside Western Sydney. So she went up that Saturday to see them in concert, and she got back at the end of the night and said, "Oh, you'll never guess who was playing on the go karts." There's a running theme. This is. Then <laughs> <laughs> you know. But that's absolutely true. She missed the Beatles at the go-kart place because she went up to see them in concert. (laughs) So then, I mean, that's that's the essence of the book. These wonderful little happen, you know, happenings of just these brief encounters of um, you know meeting the Beatles or seeing the Beatles or missing the Beatles, and I just find them so utterly charming and sweet and innocent. Those are excellent words to describe the book, actually. The book, of course, itself is The Beatles in 63. I'm going to bring it to a close here because I I don't think my heart can be touched any more than it already has. <laughs> I am, I Look, it always sounds like shameless shilling on my part, but I absolutely adore this book. I've really connected with it. I haven't technically finished it yet, but I'm definitely working my way through it. And the fact that I'll be reading this book after this interview actually will be more proof than anything that I actually really do. My my, my wife, my this is my wife's bedtime reading at the moment. <laughs> it is in the middle of October and she's a month into it. So it's taken her a, a month to, so I reckon... Well, November is several pretty big months. So I reckon it will take her five or six weeks to read the book. Bear in mind, she reads it every single night. I can just picture you doing your teeth in the next room. I don't hear reading. <laughs> no, it's funny because she's reading this while I'm reading Tune In. Oh. So, you know, it's Beatles all the time. So anyway, thank you for your very kind words about it. And, um, you know, I, I feel that from what I'm getting so far, if it gets out there and people know about it, I think people will buy it. 
Um, so it's really all about that. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with it and I had a great time doing it, whether Thanks. it sells or not. You know. <laughs> Folks, I do urge you to go out there and purchase this, not not just because you're a Beatles fan, but just if, if you're a fan of history. This is a great historical text. Uh, I did history at university for a year before dropping out, but I am I'm an absolute fan of this style of writing. The, the formatting, as we have discussed at length, is absolutely in, enrapturing. And if you're a casual Beatles fan, if you're a diehard, you are going to find something in this that is going to be brand new and touching and heartwarming. It's a, it's just a big smile from cover to cover. I cannot recommend it enough. Folks, thank you for watching the episode of Paul or Nothing. I've been Sam. This, this has been David Reese. Thank you so much for joining us. Take care, everyone. Thanks and love. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Mobile autographs. I'm too busy. Can't do anymore. <laughs>